0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Jenny Seibel. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity, and it is really good to be in worship with you this morning. So good to be worshiping together. If you missed Matthew's intro this morning, I just want to reiterate a couple of things that he said, um, and that is just the nature of how we record these services. They're going to come to you. This service is going to come out a few days after we actually record it. And so in our world right now, three days can really mean anything. It can mean so many things. So, just to say that we are going to um, record this a few days before you actually see it. But we also are recording it just in the faith that, like, the Bible's not going to change in three days. The Spirit of God is not going to change in three days. And so, whatever we do this morning, we believe is transcendent and will speak a good word um, on Sunday as much as it is right now. So, with that in mind, we're going to read the Bible. We're going to start in Matthew's gospel today and Chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this, Jesus says. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a shout, Look, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, no, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so thankful for, for who you are. To just read a text that is all your words is such a gift. And we acknowledge that these words spoke something into existence when they came out of your mouth and they're continuing to live and work and move and breathe. And so we ask you, Lord, that you would breathe on us this morning, Holy Spirit. Would you breathe out these words again? Would you help us to hear you, to see you, Lord, in this text? Open our hearts to what you have to say to us. Give us peace in order to hear it, Lord. So we've been in the gospel of Matthew for many, many weeks now, and we are at the final collection of Jesus's teaching at the end of this gospel. Scholars call this the apocalyptic discourse, and that's because Jesus is starting to talk about the end times, something that many of us are either very familiar with or know very little about or somewhere in between. Um, What Jesus is doing is he's talking about what will happen when he comes back to earth after he has ascended into heaven and reconciles all things to himself. So he's giving us a a kind of of image, a picture of what that will look like. He's really answering three questions in this discourse. One, what will this look like? Two, when will it happen? Or, you know, we won't know when it happens. Or three, he's saying, what do we do in the meantime? So this section that we're reading right now is apocalyptic in that um, Jesus is talking about the end times. What he's, who he's talking to, who apocalyptic literature is always written, written for and preached to is people in pain people who are waiting, people who are in exile. And so when Jesus speaks these things, he's speaking to people who are living in the midst of great uncertainty. And what apocalyptic literature does and apocalyptic preaching does is it says, despite the uncertainty around you, there is something that is absolutely certain. And it is that in the end, God will come. He will return and he will meet all your desires in him. There will be a great day when God does this. This is certain even when nothing else is. So when we read Apocalypse, we can maybe get a little nervous, but just know that that is the whole point. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. Even this gospel, after the words of Jesus were spoken and then Matthew starts to write down this gospel that we read today, is written to a people who at that time believed Jesus would have returned by then. And they're their hopes are deferred and they're waiting on him and they're disappointed. And some people are even leaving the faith. So not only were these words important when they left Jesus's mouth, but when these words were written down, they were important. And in the same exact way, when they come to us today, people living in the midst of uncertainty, they're meant to speak some certainty to us. So thank you, Jesus, for that. So this parable is one of the ones that's asking, what do we do in the meantime? This is the second in, a, uh, in three of three parables that is answering that question. That's talking about faithful waiting, what it means to wait well, which if you know anything about Christianity, you know, that's a large part of what it means to be a Christian. We're about to enter into the season of Advent where we really practice this and celebrate this form of being a Christian. This is what faith is. Its maturity in faith is waiting well. If you know any children, you know they're not great at waiting. This is the thing that comes when we mature in Christ. So at its core, boiled down, what this parable does is it's a metaphor for us of what it looks like to be a mature Christian. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna look through four movements in this parable that tell a story about what it looks like to be a Christian. So the first being, we have our five wise women and our five foolish women, which is a phrase I do not like to say, but alas, here we are. So we have these 10 women, five are wise, five are foolish, and they're going to meet the bridegroom and they need oil for their lamps. And the text says, as the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and fell asleep which is interesting because if you know anything about the Bible, if you've read it for any amount of time, if you've been with these parables, um, you know that falling asleep is the absolute worst thing you can do as you're waiting on the bridegroom, as you're waiting for Jesus. And yet all 10 of these women fall asleep. And so already I think Jesus is trying to show us something and say something to us, that this parable holds this kind of tension between planning for the future and living in the present, which is what God calls us to. It gives us a vision for the Christian life where we both act now and we wait. We do both of those things. I think a helpful way to put it is urgent waiting. That is the posture that we're meant to take up as Christians. Jesus commands us to both be present in this moment and be prepared for the world that God is calling us into, to prepare the way for Jesus's return, to make the earth look as much like the kingdom of God as possible. I think that many of us are really afraid of really stepping into a Christian life, a life with Jesus, because we're afraid that we may never rest again, or we may never feel like we get to do anything fun ever again, or we may just be so active for Jesus that when we're not doing something for him, we feel guilty. And yet what Jesus says here is that even the wise women need their sleep. So just first thing to say that as we talk about maturing in Christian faith and moving into a life of mature faith with Jesus, that does not mean you never sleep or never relax or never have fun. In fact, recreation was built into who you are, built into the universe with the Sabbath. God wants that for you. So just to say, before we like move into anything else, to say that you, you need sleep. God gives to his beloved sleep and you need to act. And we're meant to know and live both of those things out. So secondly, the foolish say to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. And we all know this person. It's the kid at your SAT who brings no pencils because they're sure everyone else will, or the person who dumps group work on you because they'll, they know that you'll do it. And there's something about these people that really drives some of us crazy. And um, these kinds of people, what they have in common, I think, is this lack of vision for what's ahead. They're just doing the next thing. And so what these wise women have in their urgent waiting is clarity of purpose and direction. It's what the foolish woman just did not have, that clarity of purpose and direction. Showing up to the SAT without our pencils is how some of us have lived out our spiritual lives, I believe, for a really long time. Some of us have incredibly deep fat, like deep felt beliefs about Christianity, about being a Christian. And yet if you look over the course of your life, What are the practices that are there? What are the rhythms that are there that prove that, that show that? I'm really thankful for books like James in the New Testament that remind us that what we believe and what we do are wrapped up in one another. This has nothing to do with salvation for what I'm talking about. It's just that when we really believe, our lives really look different. And so if we Are having trouble making our lives look like a christian life have the practices maybe there's an issue with the belief and maybe that's a really good place for you to begin to ask yourself what it is that you really do believe because these women the wise women the reason they had clarity of purpose is because they knew the bridegroom was coming They were sure of it. And so they knew exactly what to do. It was very clear as to what their lives ought to look like because they had that clarity of purpose and the foolish woman did not. So what does a life look like that really believes that? These are good questions to sit with this week if you're one of those people who finds themselves having a lot of trouble making your life look like what you think it ought to look like in terms of your practices and rhythms. So thirdly, This is the hardest one for me. The wise women say to the foolish women, No, we will not give you any of our oil. There will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And I had a lot of trouble with this, thinking about this the last few days, because it just feels rude, (laughs) honestly, Um, and really harsh, and not how I think Jesus would answer that question. And yet, I think there is something about oil, which we'll define what that is in a second, that's non-transferable. Which is interesting because there is so much that I believe is true of our faith that is transferable. I, in my prayer life, think all the time and pray through Um, this story that Jesus tells in Mark's gospel, where these friends drag a man who's paralyzed on a mat all the way to the house that Jesus is in. They get him onto the roof, they tear open the roof and lower him in. And once they they get him down there, Jesus looks at the friends and says, your faith has allowed me to forgive this man. And then he heals him. And there's something that's transferable about their faith in that moment and we are called to intercede for one another. We can actually spiritually carry things for one another. I'm sure you've felt that at some point in your life. We can maybe even perhaps through that story have faith on someone else's behalf. But what we cannot transfer to another person is a life lived with the treasures of the Holy Spirit in us. Our deep friendship with Jesus, there is some kind of deep well within us that cannot be transferred to another person. You can reap the fruits of my deep friendship in life with Jesus and the Holy Spirit in me, but you cannot go there with me. I cannot give it to you, offer it to you. This thing about oil is such an important um, metaphor to me that I've been sitting with this week. Because oil is not water. And I know that's an obvious statement. But water is so important in the Bible and what it does. There's so many images and so many um, times that people talk about water and, and explain what it does for us. And it's such a beautiful metaphor. But oil does something else. Oil is richer and it's more substantial. It does something different than water. Oil, sorry, water cleanses. Oil anoints water sheds things, oil adds things. There is a richness to oil. In Hebrew, the word shemen, which is a verb, comes from the same root that the, the word oil comes from. And shemen means to be fat, which I love because it's this kind of image of having this like Fat soul, a rich soul filled with the Holy Spirit, a deep well of oil and friendship with Jesus that I cannot give to another person. I think all the time about my um, younger brother. I've chosen to take some spiritual authority over his life, and he is he is an atheist. And I imagine myself all the time on my deathbed and in in my spirit dragging that man on a mat into the throne room of heaven with me, like on my way out of this world and hoping that Jesus can look at me and say, your faith has saved him. And maybe that is true. And I hope that it's true. But what I cannot give to him in this life is the treasures of a life spent with Jesus. They're non-transferable, And there is a gift that in the end, what will come is those treasures. They'll come at last. Um, But before we go there, let's go to the last point because I'm jumping ahead of myself now. Lastly, the end of this parable, it says, those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet and the door was shut. We talked about a wedding banquet a few years, a few years, that is what it feels like, a few weeks ago. Um, and this is not a metaphor to be overlooked. This is, and I think I wrote this in the Midweek Reader too, that when we come to a wedding banquet in a parable, it's not just like a side story. It's meant to, as Christians, as people who have come out of this faith of this whole entire book of the Bible, this this book that is the Bible, we're supposed to see wedding banquet and hear something and see something, be a part of what's happening. It's supposed to give us that clarity clarity of purpose that we ought to have. The wedding is the reminder that one day all our desires will be met in the person of Jesus, that he will come and he will reconcile all things to himself. All that is in you that has such deep desires that would just do anything to get, to get those things, whatever those things are, that place of desire in you will be met in Jesus at a great and wonderful wedding banquet that we will all share with each other that one day we really will feast in the house of Zion. We'll celebrate and feast and laugh and we'll dance together. It's real, it will happen. And all of these small faithful acts of waiting will be recognized and they will be fulfilled. And Jesus will see all the ways that you have collected oil and bought oil over the years. And all of those things will come to fruition in this one beautiful moment. So for these wise women, um, I'm not a person that's late often, except now that I have a child, things have become more complicated. Um, but I like to prepare really well. So there are seamless transitions. And, um, and that is what I envision and see in these wise women in this story, that there is a sort of seamless transition from a life without the bridegroom to a life with the bridegroom. Um, I'm not going to make any kind of eschatological assumptions here, but this is, this is kind of what I liken it to. When I spend a week really praying, really being faithful with Jesus and spending time with him in the word and in prayer, When I come to worship at these services, there is a seamless transition. There's no need for me to like warm up or get in the mood to be in worship with Jesus. There's a seamless transition from this former life where I am not, where I'm hanging out with my friends and, you know, having coffee to worship. It just, goes together. It's easy. And that's what happens for these wise women. And similarly, when I am not having a prayer life that is regular, when I'm not in the word, it is really hard for me to get into the space of worship. I have to really concentrate. And sometimes I never even get there. And yet that's what we're called to. And I know there are seasons where it's just hard. And that is true. Um, but these women, when I think about them, it's not like they were living this, this grand life outside of life in the wedding banquet. It was dark. It was probably cold. And they were figuring out how to make it work within that darkness. They knew that that darkness was going to be long and hard. And then they said, we were going to get something that's going to make us get through this thing. And that's what we're meant to do as Christians. So even though the road is dark, we cultivate a vision that is deep within us so that when we hold up the light and see it for ourselves, it's obvious. Because we all need a little bit of Narnia right now, I'm gonna read from The Last Battle, which is the last book in the series. And it's a part where a character is explaining kind of what's happening Is metaphorically. It's like the end times. Uh, The old earth is meeting the new earth and a new Narnia has come. And a character is explaining what that looks like and what it feels like. He says, It is as hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you will get some idea of it if you think like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea or a green valley that wound away among mountains. And in the wall of that room opposite to the window, there may have been a looking glass. And as you turn away from the window, you suddenly catch sight of the sea or that valley all over again in the looking glass. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just the same as the real ones. Yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story, a story you've never heard, but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and every flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. It was the unicorn, obviously, who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right, foot, right hoof on the ground and neighed. And then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life. Though I never knew it until now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this come further up, come further in. And that is what I feel Jesus calling us into through this parable to come further up and further in. And so, my last word to you is if this life of Christian faith, maturity, and faith, if a life where you're practicing things, where you're like buying oil feels foreign to you, if you feel like thin-souled, like there is more for you, I just want to say yes to that because there is. And the Holy Spirit wants to come and be with you and give you that richness of oil deep within your soul, wants to make you a more substantial person. So I say to you, go buy oil. Go buy it for yourself. It will be worth everything that you pay for it, everything. Amen. So we'll see you in a few minutes at communion where we're going to celebrate a foretaste of what this great feast will be like together. Thank you all so much. We'll see you then.